said anything other than Romans chapter 9 through 11 has been the hardest bit of scripture that I've studied in my uh, pastoral slash teaching career. It's a hard bit of scripture, y'all. And, uh, but I've loved every bit of it, and I've loved teaching it. Um, and, and, and so these, these three chapters um, are coming to a, a uh, close today. Um, and just by way of review, um, I'm going to read something that I wrote. Uh, because I think it'll be more concise that way. And so bear with me. I don't often just read from the pulpit. But I wrote this because, uh, and I wrote it in a tone that sounds like preaching. So maybe, maybe it'll, be, uh, it'll feel normal. Um, but we have been looking at the nation of Israel. And this idea that God has not forgotten them. Okay, these are the people that uh, God chose to establish a work in thousands of years ago, long before Christ came to earth. Uh, God chose a people, and his desire is that they would be used to bless the earth and to testify of the goodness of God. And, um, and, they, and, and in many ways, um, in many times, in many dispensations, they failed at that work. They failed at that work, but it is in no way... Uh, stolen from them the promises and the covenants that God bestowed upon them. And that's, that is it. That is the crux of Romans 9, 10, and 11. That's the heartbeat of it, is that God is not done with the people that he made promises to. And we're going to conclude uh, this portion of the study that, um, that I've broken down and dissected in terms of the witnesses uh, that testify of the truth of God's goodness towards Israel. And we've, we've um, looked at each one of these examples. We talked about how Paul's testimony is a witness of God's goodness and his faithfulness. Uh, we talked about the witness of Elijah, that he wasn't alone, that, that God had, had left a remnant uh, there to stand alongside him in the worship of God, even when it seemed like everyone was really far away from God. We talked about the Gentiles as being the people group that God uses to provoke the nation of Israel, to coming back to God. And we talked about the patriarchs and the witness uh, that, that they are to the nation of Israel that God is faithful and he's going to complete the work that he's begun. Today we're going to look at the testimony and the witness of God himself and we'll look at God's very heartbeat and his testimony and his view and perspective of the nation of Israel as it concerns the future kingdom. That's heavy stuff. Especially for you visitors, if you haven't been here through the entirety of this series, um, I, I just pray that you would just glean whatever it is that God would give you today and that it would strengthen you to come back and to continue to listen and to, to, to continue uh, to hear what Romans is actually about. So I'm going to uh, briefly read this history. I'll, I'll just call it a history and um, let that lead in terms of the message for thousands of years, the Jewish people enjoyed the privilege of knowing God and being the primary object of his affection. The Jews were quite literally a national entity, a religious order, and a spiritual power all at once. All at once. But the history of the Jewish people is one of inconsistency and blemish, times of great victory and times of darkness. And if you read the Old Testament, you know, you're, you're familiar with this being their testimony. Just before Jesus came into the world, 
The Jews had been in perhaps their darkest season yet. No prophets meant no revelation. Corrupt religious leaders meant oppression and hypocrisy. False idols and sinful pursuits, pursuits meant no God-given power in their lives. 400 years of captivity in foreign lands under the rule of oppressors and not a peep, not a vision from God. And then the Son of God came. Yeah? And he broke that silence. Jesus Christ lived among his own people performing miracles and presenting a revelation of God's word like the Jews had never experienced before. And as Lisa Cheadle wrote in her song about John 8, his words were song and swords, uh, a song and swords in one. Right? His words were piercing and poetic. A man of authority and power living a life of humility. He lived, he lived and fellowshiped with thieves. He, he, he spent his time with the broken and the impoverished. He spoke with outcasts while seemingly ignoring the religious rulers and leaders whose eyes were hot upon him. He was hated, he was rejected, and he was eventually murdered. Jesus rose again, though, and the months following his resurrection, many Jews came to believe and follow him. Uh, as these few hundred declared him the Messiah, they were met with resistance and once again were met with the hands of their oppressors and they heard the, the anger of the religious order. A man named Stephen preached a message to the men of this Jewish order, declaring to them that all of history had pointed to Jesus, to the very moment in which they lived. As he called them to repent, they stoned him to death. We talked about this not too long ago. The followers of Christ immediately scattered all over the world, taking their gospel with them, some to Galatia, some to Samaria, some to Ephesus, some to India, some to Mesopotamia, and some to Rome. The gospel began to enter into the Gentile communities that had been steeped in millennia after millennia of idolatry and sin. In the midst of this period of fear and persecution, there was a young man behind the scenes ordering the havoc that the Jews were, had wrought among these people. I mean, anyone, anyone that had accepted Jesus Christ, particularly Jews, the Jewish leadership were ready to persecute them. And there was one man that was working behind the scenes to make sure that it happened, and this was Saul. Saul was of a high religious pedigree, a man of knowledge, power, and potential. Saul was highly respected among the Jews until one miraculous day on the road to Damascus when he met the shining light that was the resurrected Jesus. This was the day of his conversion to Christianity. The day he became the Apostle Paul. This is the day he willingly took all of his Jewish privilege and turned it on its head. He became a powerful force for the message of Jesus Christ, not to the Jews, but to the Gentile nations. For this reason, he was hated all the more. The letter to the church in Rome is a letter from the Apostle Paul to the growing and eclectic church in the most powerful city in the world. It was a letter that was intended to make sense 
of one's personal salvation, to clarify on the gospel that they had received. It was a letter about faith. It was a letter about holy devotion. In the midst of this letter, he takes some time to address the future of the the Jewish people. In chapters 9 through 11, Paul spends some time encouraging the Jewish Christians to believe that God had not forgotten his promises to the Jews. He spends some time reminding the Gentiles not to be proud of their newly found religious privilege. And we left the letter, uh, when we last left the letter, Paul was speaking to both audiences with the intent that he, he would prove to them that God was temporarily suspending the Jewish people's religious privilege. That it was suspended, it was not forgotten, right? It was not left to uh, its own devices, that God's eye was keenly on them, yet his hand was not moving in their midst. And that one day he would reinstate them in a national salvation of unfathomable, unfathomable proportion. In chapter 11, he presents proof after proof of how God always finishes what he starts. That's, that's where we've been. And now when we pick up in verse 25, what we're going to look at is God's clear testimony, his, his contractual agreements, his guarantees that he has not forgotten the nation of Israel. Now, why is this significant to us? I mean, why was it significant for the Gentiles of the early church to hear? We have to recognize as a people that God's plan is really big. We have to recognize that His prophetic word is true. We have to recognize that God, when He makes promises, that He keeps them. And so for us, as Gentile believers, going through chapters 9, 10, and 11, what we're learning is that God has a mighty plan. He has a mighty, mighty plan. And at the end of that plan is the glorification of his name. Are you with me? So let's look uh, at verse 25. It says, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits. That blindness in part, is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Now, this is important. And uh, again, you only have so much time, right? You only have so much time. But blindness, in part, has happened to the nation of Israel. In other words, it's not complete blindness. God has always given uh, all of mankind opportunity to receive Him. It's not a full blindness. There are Jews in Rome, even during this, this time, who are reading this letter who can attest to the fact that they received the light of the gospel. But blindness in part, as the nation is concerned, has happened because of their refusal of Jesus. And the first thing that we're going to look at is God's constitutional guarantee, His principle of rulership, that He will keep His promise to the Israelites. And He says explicitly here, I would not, brethren, that ye be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness, until, that means that there's a time that's coming, until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. So note this really quickly, for you Bible students, this is important to know, that there's two phrases that we can find in Scripture, and we should not confuse the two phrases. One is the times of the Gentiles. Okay, this, fr- this phrase, times of the Gentiles, is a description of, of the earthly rulership, the kingdoms 
of the Gentiles that were established beginning with Nebuchadnezzar. And you can read about this in Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar is the first Gentile king to really rule and reign in such a way that it dominated the entirety of the world. And even until today, it's Gentile nations that basically pull the strings in terms of governance and rulership in the world. You guys acknowledge that, especially you college students, right? For those of you who've had, uh, what's the class that they teach? What do they call it? Current affairs, or what is it, the class that they teach? No, not Western civilization, though that is a study in the history of this. Uh, what is it? Modern global issues. Okay, Modern global issues is what they call it. Right, And you're familiar with this. And, and if you look at history, this really began. We could see this happening in uh, Daniel, where the Gentiles rule. And whenever you see this phrase, the times of the Gentiles in Scripture, it's, made, it's making reference to the physical rulership of the Gentiles in this world. Okay? But the, the phrase that we want to focus our attention on is this phrase, fullness of the Gentiles. Fullness of the Gentiles that we see here, until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. It's a description of the spiritual ascendancy of the Gentiles, which will end with the rapture of the church. Okay? Now, so when I say spiritual ascendancy, what I mean is spiritual access to the living God. Prior to Jesus Christ coming into this world, the Gentiles were lost in their false idolatry. They were consumed with their own culture and religious ways and practices and did not have access to God the Father the God that the Jews had worshipped. And through Jesus Christ, they gained that access. And through the preaching of the gospel, through Paul, they were gaining all the more access. And even today, over the last 2,000 years, we can see the impact of the gospel as it's played out in, the, in really primarily the Western world, as well as places like Africa, okay, as well as places like, like China and, and in Asian, uh, Asian uh, nations, that um, are not the Jewish people, right? And so we've seen the gospel grow and increase. And what's being made reference to here is that one day this time uh, called the fullness of the Gentiles will come to a close. That there'll be a time in which the Gentiles are no longer the religious privileged in this world. And that will be marked by what we call the rapture. Now the rapture, the word rapture, we won't find that in scripture, but we'll see it he made re reference to over and over again, and it's a very important doctrine, the rapture. Okay, It's a word that describes the day in which Christ will return to deliver the church from the earth and to himself. That we will meet him in the skies and then be present with him in heaven. The predominantly Gentile church will be removed off the earth and taken out of the way and the great tribulation will begin. Now, now, where is it that the Bible talks about this? 1 Thessalonians 4.15 is one instance, and it's one that, that is, is very clear. So we're going to look at that one. I think it's on the slide. 1 Thessalonians 4.15. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain, okay, speaking to the church that is living and remains on earth right now, unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. In other words, um, those that are uh, dead in, uh, in Christ, okay? For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Okay, those which are, are dead will rise first, those who are, whose bodies remain in the grave. 
Their souls are present in heaven. Their bodies are in the graves. Their bodies will meet their soul in heaven. And then just behind them, then them which are alive, that would be like if Christ was to return right this moment, that would be us because we're still living. We would go and meet him. Then we which are alive remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord in, 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 in um, heavenly places, in future uh, kingdom. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And what is important to understand for us is that the rapture will mark not just the end of the church and the beginning of the tribulation, but it also marks the redemption of Israel. Are you with me? Is this heavy? Eric, am I being a little bit too heavy this morning? Praise the Lord. Keep going. <laughs> Let me explain something to you. You know why the rapture of the church is important to you? For those of you that are saved, you need to be living like that could happen tomorrow. No man will know the time, okay, in which this takes place. And it's the tradition of the church. That began with the apostles to believe that it could be any moment. And for you to learn about the rapture is incredibly significant because you know what? You don't know when your last breath will be. You don't know when your earthly stewardship will end. And you've got to make the best of it. Full of faith right now. Another reason why the rapture is incredibly significant is for some of you in this room right now, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Just like the Jews, you're asleep to the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to this earth to die for your sins. And only through forgiveness, only through repentance, can you know him. And the rapture being imminent is important to you because you don't know when this is all going to come to an end. Your opportunity to receive Christ, when that will be up. The rapture is incredibly significant. And we, we need to take it seriously. But when the rapture takes place... Okay, here's another plus real quick. Okay, if this is feeling a little heavy, right? Some of you, you need to get disciples. And some of you, you need to take D2. And some of you need to begin uh, LFBI, our Bible Institute. And some of you... When the time comes, you need to sign up for the Daniel Revelation class because you need to get your eschatology in order. Many Christians do not understand the end times. And so they view Israel wrong. They don't understand the nation of Israel. Okay? And they don't understand God's future promises. They make light of them. They allegorize them. They explain them away. And some of you, uh, this needs to be a challenge for you to sign up and be a part of LFBI and grow in your knowledge of God's word. But let's get back to this. Until the fullness of the Gentiles become in, the Gentiles will be ushered from one place to another to make room for Israel to come to terms with its blindness. This is the constitutional guarantee, the principle of God, that he keeps his promises in this way. He keeps his promises this way. Verse 26, let's look at his Christological guarantee. There's also a guarantee that comes through Christ, meaning... Christ himself will come, come during and at the end of this period called the tribulation. And we're not, again, we're not going to dissect this completely. But there will come a day where Jesus himself comes to rescue his people. 
Verse 26 says, And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Sion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Jacob. The deliverer, of course, is Jesus, right? We recognize that. And during this tribulation, the greater part of the nation of Israel, this time of great tribulation on the earth, the greater part of the nation of Israel will refuse to recognize the Messiah, and they will perish. And you can read about this in Jeremiah chapter 50. I don't know if I put it up there. Jeremiah chapter 50, yeah, and Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. But at the second advent, Christ will redeem those Jews who are alive at the end of the tribulation. Those Jews who have put their faith in the Messiah. He will step in. He will intervene. Jesus Christ himself will protect them. And stand in the gap. And make sure that these people who've come to faith in him, in this national salvation, that he will stand and guard them. Let's, let's read a passage about this. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. This is a really awesome passage especially since a handful of you who went to uh, Israel uh, and visited Jerusalem visited uh, the Valley of Armageddon. And this passage is about that place. It says, here's the promise, here's the promise. This is the promise of Jesus Christ returning and delivering his people. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, If that's not prophetic, I don't know what is. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his own son. In other words, that blindness that we saw will be lifted. And the nation of Israel, as a people group, will fully see that they they killed the Messiah. And that the very Son of God was missed, that they missed him the first time. And they'll mourn, they'll mourn the, the loss of the Son. And shall be in bitterness for him, as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. In that day, in the midst of their bitterness, in the midst of their trial, in the midst of that labor, in that day shall there be a great mourning in Jerusalem, as the mourning of Hadad Rimon, tough word, man, in the valley of Megadon, which is the, the valley of Armageddon. And the land shall mourn, every family apart, the family of the house of David apart, and their wives apart, and the family of the house of Nathan apart, and their wives apart, and the family of the house of Levi apart, and their wives apart, the family of Shemai apart, and their wives apart, all the families that remain, every, part, uh, every family apart, and their wives apart. And there's, there's beautiful descriptions in Scripture of Christ coming and stepping and placing his foot down on the mount and coming over the mountainside, coming from the east, and entering into great battle in defense of his nation. This is, this is the Christ promise that we see. You know, a lot of times we like to think of Jesus as the servant. And that's absolutely true. We just looked at Mark and we talked about how Jesus Christ came into this world, world in the first advent, in, the, in his first coming as a babe. And he came to live as a servant, quiet and meek. I mean, if you remember the cross, when they were, when they were uh, uh, asking all of those questions of him, and they were, they were persecuting him and demanding answers, that he didn't say anything. He just kept his mouth quiet and awaited the cross. He was a servant. 
But there's coming a day, and it was it's promised for us even right here, that he is going to come with a sword. You can read about this in Revelation chapter 19. He's coming with a sword in a physical defense of his people. And he will stand as king and ruler and defender of the nations. That's a promise. That's a guarantee. And we need to believe him for it. Lastly, there's a contractual guarantee, a covenant of promise that he will redeem the nation of Israel just as he did with the Gentile nations. The same type of promise. Look at verse 27. This is his contractual guarantee. Verse 27 says, For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Man, how awesome is that? All right, Carla, just because you're going to Living Faith Lee Summit doesn't mean you need to make chaos of this congregation, okay? <laughs> um, hey, let me say something to you real quick. You guys, I don't know if you understand this, but, but you know, the nation of Israel has, has been oppressed for a really long time, and they really haven't been a nation for... For, until just recently, right? There was about a 2,000-year period in which the Jews were scattered all over the earth, okay? Beginning with the oppression in like, in, uh, in like uh, uh, you know, 400 AD, <coughs> the oppression began. And over that 400 years, the Jews just kind of scattered from their place of habitation. The, the Jews didn't have a home for a really long time. They haven't been a nation for a really long time. And you know what? Christians, for the last 2,000 years, didn't know what to do about that. Right? They would read in Scripture these promises about the nation of Israel, the future nation. And you know what they would do? Pastors, believers of God's Word, you know what they would do? They couldn't believe that the, the, the Jews would actually ever be a real national entity ever again. And so they'd explain it away. They would take the promises of Scripture and they would... They would they would do jumping jacks and gymnastics with it and twist it and move it to get it to say what they wanted it to say so that they could explain it away. And this is really where replacement, replacement theology began to be popularized. Because they just couldn't believe that all the promises that God made about the nation of Israel could come true. But then in 1948, as many of you know, that the Jews that had been scattered all over the earth were proclaimed a nation once again and the rulers, the Gentile rulers of this earth said, let's carve out a space and dedicate it once again to the Jews. And so they began to flock to that place. They began to regather themselves. And for the last 60 years, what we see is the nation of Israel growing in strength again. And really, they're one of the greatest military mites in the world. I mean, they're, they're but a dot on your map. But the city of Jerusalem is one of the most fortified places in all the world. And in just a matter of 50 years, God has intervened and done something that no one could believe could ever happen. Isn't that pretty amazing? What does he say here? For this is my covenant unto them. What else are we going to do besides believe God? At what point are Christians going to take the word of God at face value and just believe it for what it says? Here's our key point. God, he has a way and a purpose that is bigger than us and really bigger than our current history, this moment, this now. It's bigger. It's bigger. 
And this is why that's important. Because we live in a very superficial, temporal, and materialistic world. We are very concerned with the now. As a people, as Americans, we are very obsessed with pleasing ourselves right now. In fact, many of you are thinking about how you're going to spend your afternoon pleasing yourself. What movies are you going to watch? What food are you going to eat? What video games are you going to play? What are you going to do with your afternoon? Oh, I don't know. We're obsessed with it now. And so much so that when we read God's word, a lot of time we read it as though it just applies to us, as though it's just for us. And here's the thing we fail to realize is that he has a way and he has a purpose and he has a kingdom and he has a prophecy that's greater and grander and more important than we could ever imagine. And we need to get on board with that if we're going to live like Christians now. If we're going to live and act like Christ in the now, then we need to know what Christ looks like in the then. Who is he? What is his heartbeat? What is is his purpose? Where is it that he's headed? And we need to get on board and we need to run parallel to those train tracks. Does this make sense? Is it possible for you to live in light of the future? That's the question. Is it possible for you to look afar off and see the plan that God promises in in his word? And because of what you see, live differently right now. A great example of this is the judgment seat. One day, every Christian will answer for the life they lived. In light of that truth, what are you doing today? We need to, as Christians, have our eyes both set on our present, but also set on the horizon, awaiting the return of Jesus. Now let's look at his mercy towards Israel. Okay, we're going to do this, guys. We're going to finish chapter 11. We're going to do this. And we're going to do so, hopefully, with the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Verse 30. For as ye in times past have not believed God, Ye have now obtained mercy through their unbelief. That's speaking of the Gentiles, right? Okay, look, in times past, you Gentiles, you didn't believe, and yet you've obtained mercy through their unbelief. Verse 31, even so have these also now not believed that through your mercy, they also may obtain mercy. So through your provocation, Gentile believer, the nation of Israel will one day believe again. 32, for God hath concluded that them uh, all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. God's mercy is rich. He has mercy for the Gentiles in verse 30. He has mercy for the Jews in verse 31. And he has mercy for the entire world in verse 32. His mercy is rich. So here's our key point. God's mercy is persistent even in the midst of our unbelief. Even in the midst of our unbelief. You know, in Rome, the Jews were having a hard time believing that God was going to redeem their people. That he still had a plan for them. They struggled with that. They struggled to believe him for his promises. You know, a lot of us, just inspirationally, a lot of us today have a hard time believing God for the simple things in our life. We struggle with belief. We struggle, particularly as it concerns our friends and family, who seem so far away from God that they could never be saved. You know, God has mercy for them. 
Even when we struggle in unbelief, God has mercy for them. And you know, this is super true for me. You know, the beautiful thing about the, the, the family of God and the church is that when I have a hard time believing that God is going to reach my sister in her sinful state, because I'm so subjective, I'm so biased, and I've seen everything transpire. I've seen the ups and downs. I know all of her problems and all of her difficulties. And when things seem really difficult as it concerns my sister and her pursuit of the Lord, guess what? None of you guys have that baggage. And you can pray for my sister with pure hope and pure belief and pure uh, charity without any bias whatsoever. You can just believe on my behalf. And that's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing, and I appreciate that. And we have that to offer one another, is belief that in the midst of our unbelief, we would believe this, that we would believe this, that God is merciful even when we struggle to trust Him. That his heart is toward the Jews. That his heart is toward the Gentiles. That his heart is towards the lost world. That includes your friends and family members. That he looks at them and he sees them. And he longs for them. And he pursues them. And the beautiful thing about prayer is that we can sway him in such a way that he will be even more persistent than we could ever imagine. Than even what our friends and family members deserve. You know? We have to believe that. Verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches, both of wisdom and knowledge. Now let's pause before I read this any further. What's happening here in the, in the end of this chapter in these verses, um, what we see is a doxology. You guys know what a doxology is? What's a doxology? Anybody, no? It's like a moment in scripture where there's a pause of praise. Now in such a heady series of chapters, right? With so much logic and reasoning happening here. Chapter 9 and chapter 10 and chapter 11, it's just kind of heavy and it's difficult reading, right? It's prophetic and it's doctrinal in so many different ways. It's so interesting that at the end of all this information, at the end of all those five witnesses, that Paul takes a moment here to carve out a time of praise. Let's read it real quick. Verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Do you? Do you know it? Do you know the ways in the mind of the Lord? Of course you don't. Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him? And it shall be recompensed unto him again. You have nothing to offer God. He owes you nothing. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. See, these chapters concerning the future state of Israel are so significant in terms of understanding the attributes of God that we have to end in doxology, that we have to end this series of this bit of information by taking time to pause and glorify His holy and righteous name because His ways are unsearchable. His wisdom and His knowledge goes beyond our own depth. We have nothing to offer Him. And, the, and our logic and our belief is so shallow that we have no choice but to right here just honor Him for all the things that He is. And I'm so thankful for that pause because we could move right into chapter 12 and we could totally miss the fact that this is so significant to God. That this information 
as it concerns the future kingdom, is so important to God that it deserves for us to rest in it and to honor him and to glorify him in anticipation of all he's going to do. I thank God for this. And so here's our key point. Acknowledging Christ's character is the beginning of pursuing him for all he is. Acknowledging him in all of his attributes and his character, acknowledging him at the place of his uh, his promise and his covenants, acknowledging him in his word, knowing that he's beyond our wisdom, knowing that we owe him nothing, that he's greater than our own imagination. Seeing him for all he is is the beginning of pursuing him for all he is. How can you possibly pursue a God that goes beyond you? Unless you sit and take some time to think about how he goes beyond you. Do you ever just spend time just meditating on the character of God? This is really what the Psalms and the Proverbs are for. This is why God gave them to us, that we could take time to take just little chunks of information about who God is, about who Jesus is, and just sit and rest in him and think about him and honor him in such a way that we can change the way we live today. This is why when when Pastor Kenny says, when he reads the words, hear him, just those two words in Mark blew him away. Because we have the ability to meditate on the truths and the attributes of God and just meditating and sitting and resting in them can actually alter and change the way we think about our reality. We have to make sure, Christian, you know, here's the thing, especially for a young person, listen to me very carefully. It's really easy to get trapped in this idea that it's time to learn. It's time to grow in our knowledge. And I want to know God's word. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, the pursuit of Christian living is being like Christ. It's Philippians chapter 2. It's, it's having his mind. That's the true pursuit of God. It's having his mind. And in part, that's knowledge. But in part, it's meeting him in faith. And if we don't take time to meditate on the simplicity of Scripture and the attributes of who God is, we will never actually get his heart and his mind. We can say we want his mind, but we'll never get it. We can say that we want to be like Jesus. You know, we can say, oh, I want to be a servant. I want to be a servant. But you don't take time to, to meditate on Mark chapter 10, verse 45, and just sit there with it and realize what it means for the Son of God to have left a throne in heaven where the cherubim were calling his name constantly and worshiping him, to enter into human flesh, to be made like us in all of our commonality and simplicity, and live among us and be persecuted and spat upon and hated among his own creation. That's real servanthood. But if we just read that information and take it at just face value, then we are doing a disservice to the fact that this was God's plan for millennia. That this 33 years in which Christ lived among us was the plan from the very beginning. This blip on the radar, this moment on the map of time, was, was, this, was an incredible highlight that altered the future of this world. And if we don't take time to take a simple verse, a little bit of information, and rest on it, 
and meditate on it and praise him for it and pray over it, then we will never actually be like who he is. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Acknowledging his character is the beginning of pursuing him for all he is. So in conclusion, the, qu the question on the floor is, will you pursue Christ for all he is? In his vastness, in his bigness, in his mercy. For some of you, you need to question, have you been forgiven of your sins? Have you considered the fact that Jesus Christ came to die for you and to save you from your sins? Have you been forgiven of those sins? If not, if not, um, I mean, I don't know. I, don't, there's, I need Eric. Eric Phillips? You want to do a little ditty up here for our invitation? Sure. Can you do that? Sure. We're going to do an invitation. Okay, now listen. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and this message, this, this prophetic message, these promises compelled you to believe in Him, to trust Him at His very word, then I, I, I would urge you to grab me or grab a leader and meet with them and talk through this. You might come to a place of faith. Others of you are Christians who are living in monotony. You're living a lukewarm lifestyle. You're saying that you believe Jesus Christ, but you really have given him nothing. You don't know anything about him. And you don't necessarily even believe him at his word. For you, I'm calling you as well. I'm asking, I'm inviting you that you might repent of that. And that you might lean into his promises and accept him at his place of mercy. You know he's waiting on you. Every single one of us is holding on to something. You get that? There are things that right now I'm holding on to that spell sin in my life. I'm fleshly and weak and finite and corrupt. And I don't even know all the error of my own way. I don't even know. God, be faithful to me. Reveal the weakness in me that I might come to you and beg of you help. Does this make sense? I'm going to pray. We're going to have a time of invitation. I'd ask that whatever you need to deal with, that you would do that. Praise God. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I love you. I'm thankful for you. For your word, it, it, it ministers to my soul. And every time that I read it, and every time that I'm with you in it, it does make me to believe. Lord, that you have a plan, that you're doing, you're doing things in this world. And Lord, I just need to be a part of it. I, I just long to be a part of it. Any, anything that I've missed, Lord, I, Hannah today, her testimony was that she, she felt as though she wasted a year of her Christianity. But God, you have this way of taking what we feel like was lost, what we feel like we wasted, and redeeming it whole with in every way, redeeming it and making our future count for so much more than we could ever even imagine. So Lord, take our waste, forgive us of it, and give us strength to move forward in pursuit of you in such a way that our character would be like yours, that our pursuits would be like yours, that our eyes would be set upon the things that your eyes are set upon. Lord, that we would love one another in such a way that we look and act like Jesus Christ that we would be charitable, that the message of the gospel would be, would be on our lips, that it would be pressing on our souls, that we would not waste the life that you've given us. We love you and we need you. Be with us in this time of invitation. 
Invictus in the Lord, in your son Jesus.